It depends upon what the meaning of the word is. This is Forward Thinking. I'm Isabella Melking. Our ability to keep track of ongoing thoughts, plans, actions, current tasks, and changes around us is essential for everyday living. This ability is known as working memory, a system of the brain that allows us to focus on what we are doing, switch tasks, solve problems, or do several things at once, such as walking and talking. However, scientists disagree about what limits our working memory ability and how those limits change as we grow older. The research project, Working Memory Across the Adult Lifespan, brings together three separate teams, each with different ideas about how memories work. Here to discuss are psychology researchers Professor Robert Logie and Alicia Forsberg, both part of the University of Edinburgh project team. I'm Alicia Forsberg and I'm one of the postdocs on the WOMAC project and I'm here today with Professor Logie. And I'm Robert Logie, I'm a professor at the University of Edinburgh and I'm the lead researcher on this project which is looking at what's called working memory and how it changes across the adult lifespan. Interesting thing about the project is that it involves a group of scientists from different countries who disagree with one another. And we've got together to try and uh, work out our disagreements, get some resolution, and perhaps understand something more about human memory. So I guess, first of all, we should distinguish between working memory and short-term memory. So how would you define the difference? Working memory refers to what we have in our mind right now, what we're thinking about right now but also our ability to manipulate, to process, to deal with that information. So short-term memory refers to our ability to hold on to information over a couple of seconds as we're going through our daily lives. And what we store changes from moment to moment as we move around the world. But we don't only store information, we can also manipulate it, we can calculate, we can problem-solve. So if we're trying to remember a set of numbers, we can also add them up and subtract them. We can hold partial solutions to problems as we act on providing a solution and so on. So short-term memory is really part of working memory. Short-term memory is the bit that stores information, whereas working memory is referring to how we use the information that is stored. So I guess a good distinction would be if you give someone a sequence of digits to remember and just ask them to repeat it back, that would be measuring their short-term memory. But if you give them a sequence of digits and ask them to repeat them to you backwards, that would be a task measuring working memory. That's exactly right. But if you think about it even outside of, of the lab, in our daily lives, every waking moment of our life, we're keeping track of what's going on around about us to make sense of the world. And we're continually updating our information about what's around about us in order to be able to interact appropriately. In order for me to understand what you're saying and for you to understand what I'm saying, you have to remember what I've just said. Mm. And that has to continually update. It doesn't help you understand what I'm saying now to recall what you heard maybe 10 minutes ago. Mm. So this idea that we're continually updating the contents of working memory and trying to process it, trying to understand the world around us. So how did the idea for the WOMAC project come about, working with people who have 
different ideas about how memory works. There's a tradition, particularly in studying how the brain operates and works, for different groups of people to develop their own theories, their own understanding of memory, and to work with people who are like-minded, who have the same kind of ideas, who tend to agree with them. It's very unusual, particularly in our area of research, for different groups to work together that disagree. And the whole idea of this project was to say, well, maybe if you just work in your own individual labs, then you just perpetuate debates and never actually get anywhere in terms of really advancing understanding. So the whole point of the project was to get different groups together to directly address their differences, see how much is a real difference, how much is just apparent, um, superficial, and then set up research project where we use the same kinds of experiments, we use, approach it in the same way, but we have different expectations for the outcome of the research and then test those different outcomes. Hopefully, the result of that will be, instead of lots of different new theories, one more integrated idea that gives us a real genuine advance in understanding of how human memory works. Briefly, what would you say the difference is between the different models in the project? The three approaches that are involved in this project are characterised really by the extent to which they see memory as a single thing, a single entity, a single ability that is governed by what's quite often referred to as attention. This idea we have a kind of limited capacity resource, uh, which we call attention. And that, for example, when we have to do two things at the same time, that attention is divided up. And the more you divide it up, the weaker each task is performed. So because it's a limited resource, then we can reach that capacity very quickly. It's a limited capacity. And that's in contrast to the idea that we actually have multiple different things that we can do that, that our brain can cope with at the same time, and we can do things in parallel, and that we have very specific abilities that can deal with particular kinds of tasks. So we have one ability that helps us remember words and deals with language. There's another ability that helps us remember what things look like and where they are. Yet other abilities that might deal with remembering movements and pathways and so on. So that characterizes major differences between the two different kinds of models. But there are three groups where there's one model that has a sort of hybrid of these two, where it recognizes that there may be some multiple abilities available, but that we switch between these abilities. And the ability to switch between them is limited by some sort of central capacity for attention. Yeah, that made me think about something I thought was very interesting when I started working on the project, that a task that I've used before in my research, and known as the running memory task, was referred to as the focus of attention task. So I think, you know, for most people, if we would say we have conducted a study finding that we can improve memory or we can improve attention. That would be very different things. And it's quite a challenge to convey the differences, you know, if the same task is actually measuring these different things and how they intersect and so on. Sure, a lot depends on which kind of theory you start off with. So if you start off with the idea we have a single limited capacity of attention, then putting a demand on that is going to 
cause maybe problems. You wouldn't be able to do the task terribly well because it's pushing your capacity to its limits. However, if it's the case that we have different aspects of uh, what a brain can do, and some of these things can be done together in parallel without interfering, then you might well be able to do your running memory task and at the same time think about what you're going to have for dinner um, or uh, perhaps uh, cycle or, or walk down the street. So the idea of walking and talking is, is a good example of this. Mm. So far in the project, have you been very surprised by any of the results? Or I think all the researchers involved, and all eight researchers have been involved in this across three countries. And the most surprising result is that the experiments that we've run cannot be explained by any of the three theories that we started with. Mm -hmm. So, as I mentioned earlier, we have different expectations of what might come out of our, our research. And so we specified what those were in advance. And then after, we looked at the results and we discovered that actually the expectations were not met by any of the three theories. So this got us thinking about why that might be, so that some aspects of the results could be dealt with by one idea, other aspects of the results could be dealt with one of the other theories or ideas. So how might we resolve this? And we're starting now to look at the changes in the way that people do tasks as a possible way to resolve the differences. So one other tendency in experimental studies of how cognition works, how memory works, how attention works, is that there's one way in which a particular task is performed by people in an experiment. However, if you start to think about the possibility that the same task might be performed in different ways by different people, or even the same person on different occasions, then you might start to get some insight as to why these differences have arisen. So I'll give you an example. You ask people to remember what a set of colours are that they've looked at. Some people might remember them as the visual appearance, what the colours look like. Mm. Other people might remember the names of the colours. And depending how they do the task, you'll get very different kinds of results. And depending on the experimental manipulations, you might get people changing the way they do a task. And by examining this, we're now beginning to get a bit of insight into why these differences have arisen and perhaps come towards a more integrated theory that incorporates elements of all three. So how are you able to investigate how they approach the task? One way is you simply ask people, how did you do this? And of course, people are not always fully aware of what's going on inside their heads. So we have to check if what they say kind of matches how they're performing on the task. Now, what we have found is that when we do ask people in our experiments, that there seems to be a very interpretable, a very sensible association between what they say and how well they perform. So when they're given a more difficult task, what do they say changes about how they do the task? And what they say fits with the change in the performance. That's very interesting. So looking at these kinds of strategies is relatively novel also in these kinds of studies because there tends to be just the focus on how well people did, how fast can they respond, how much can they remember. But if we start asking questions about how are you remembering this or why is it that you're slower here than there, it gives us an awful lot more insight into what's going on. 
Another approach we can take to this, of course, is we instruct people to perform tasks in particular ways. Mm. And then we look at how the different instructions affect the way that people perform the tasks. Mm. So one example is in one of the studies, we have people trying to remember eight different colors mm -hmm. that are selected to be difficult to name. Mm -hmm. And some of them report that actually they divided them into warm and cold colors and then assigned them numbers depending on how dark they were. And then they could verbally rehearse those numbers. Do you think that's an interesting insight into how working memory works? Or is it more an artifact of the task in itself? Well, this is another difficulty that we're trying to address in the project, and that is that when researchers develop their theories of how memory functions, how it works, there's this kind of assumption that, say, everybody does the task in the same way, mm. and they don't really consider that there might be different ways of doing the task. Mm. So if we start to think about that, then maybe we get better insight. The other is that if we do assume that there's only one kind of memory system in the brain, instead of thinking that maybe people have a set of kind of mental tools, and that what we do is we choose which tools we want to use to perform a task and in different combinations. And this then allows us to understand the different ways in which people can do the same task. Mm. So if you want to take the analogy of, of trying to get a screw into a bit of wood that you could use a hammer to do that mm -hmm. or you could use a screwdriver now if you don't have a screwdriver then maybe a hammer will do the job but it won't do it quite so efficiently so it may well be a bit like this with kind of mental tools that people vary in how good they are at choosing the right mental tools for the tasks that they're being asked to perform mm. do you think this relates back to the the issue of different researchers testing their own models or theories and then finding that the results tends to fit with their own theory. Simply they design a task that's somehow bringing out a certain type of I response. Think the kind of tasks that people are asked to do in the different labs, possibly the exact wording of the instructions to the participants. Mm -hmm. There could be different background to the participants that take part, and so on and so forth. So there could be a lot of differences between labs that result in, in these different patterns of, of outcomes. One of the things we're doing the WOMAC project is that we're doing things exactly the same in different laboratories at the same time. So it's a real test of the ideas, trying to get rid of as many differences, other differences between the labs as we can. Mm. Now, one of the things that, of course, is very important about this kind of project and its success is that, first of all, we have to get on as people. We have to be able to go and have a coffee together or dinner together afterwards and not to result in major arguments. Mm. That's, that's a really important factor for the success of a project. You have to really like the people that you're working with, even if you disagree with them professionally. Yes. And then it's also important that we all have an open mind when we start. Even when we start from different perspectives, that we have to be open to the possibility that we're wrong and to think about alternative interpretations of the kind of results we get from our experiments. Yes. And those elements are really essential for this kind of project to work. Mm. The project is, is referred to as a kind of adversarial collaboration that is collaborating between people that disagree with one another. But actually, if it's too adversarial, then the whole thing could fall apart. And the project's been running for three years and we're still friends. So that's, that's a good sign. Yes. Yes. And I guess that could be quite surprising to people who 
do not do work in, in psychology, that this kind of collaboration doesn't happen more often. Yes, indeed. It's kind of surprising to me when I start to think about it, mm. um, that it's just the way that this kind of research has tended to work. And it's just very rare that you get groups of people who disagree working together. Mm. Uh, it really doesn't happen until somebody takes initiative to chat to people that they interact with at conferences or that, whose work they've seen in, in print and in published papers. And then see, well, do we get on as people? Are we open-minded enough to look for a resolution? Mm. Um, and maybe that doesn't work out terribly well a lot of the time if people are have too much of a vested interest in what they've developed themselves. Yeah. Why do you think that tends to happen? Do you think there's something with the wider reward system in academia? Well, yes. I mean, you might like to think that all scientists are are motivated by advancing understanding. But of course, there are also issues of career progression. And one very good way of establishing a reputation is become an expert in a very narrow topic to develop your own theory rather than adopting somebody else's. And there's a, a quote from some time ago from an American researcher that theories in contest psychology are a bit like a toothbrush. Everybody needs one, but you would want to use one belonging to somebody else. Mm. And that general approach to developing theory helps people with developing their own careers as mm. academics but it's less efficient in terms of advancing understanding. Mm. Which should be the ultimate goal. Yeah, indeed it should. One would hope. Uh, the other thing to think about, of course, is how this has relevance outside of the lab, because you know, we're dealing with these experiments in laboratory conditions, and we're looking at how people perform in these different kinds of tasks. But it's worth just chatting a bit about how it benefits people outside is there any benefit to the general public from this? Mm. And clearly, if we can enhance our understanding of how memory works, then we can also understand what happens when it goes wrong. We can look at the effects across age. And if we can understand what changes with age and what is preserved with age, we can then target the help that people need for those things that are deteriorating or declining with age, but don't patronise people by helping them with things they're perfectly good at. Mm. So helping people continue to have active contributions to working and, and social life can arise from this kind of project. And then understanding the kinds of problems that people suffer from as a result of, say, various kinds of brain damage uh, can arise. If we get a clear understanding of how the healthy brain works, we can perhaps understand the nature of the problems that people suffer when they've had some kind of brain damage. Hmm. So I guess for... Um... Concrete example, do you think that this research on memory, attention, processing could help, for instance, designing websites in a way that's easier to use, perhaps for... It, it certainly could if we know how people process information, how they store information, how they change. And one of the things we have found in some of our research is that as people get older, they're less good at dealing with remembering what things look like and where they are. And they're really quite good at dealing with language. Now, a lot of websites and computers are based purely on visual inputs, on visual icons and so on. And the linguistic aspects of their abilities are really underused. And so older people might find computers easier to use if they relied less on visual appearance and icons and so on that are more suitable for younger people. Mm. So those kinds of insights could certainly be helpful in an increasingly digital age 
to make sure that older people still have easy access to electronic facilities that society is increasingly depending on. Mm. One of the things we should finish with is just to mention that we have available a set of memory tests that come from our lab as sort of memory challenges that are available on the internet for anybody to use to understand their own memory a bit better, but also hopefully contribute to some of our research if we get enough people taking part. Yeah, and they include some tasks that are a bit more fun than typical memory tasks. That's right. We'd hope that they would be fun to do and and challenging uh, at the same time. Go to our project website, which is womac.sci.ed.ac.uk. That's W-O-M-A-A-C dot P-S-Y dot E-D dot A-C dot U-K. And you'll see lots of information about the project and have access to the various online tests. If you want to know more about the topics discussed in this podcast, follow the links on the Forward Thinking blog at forwardthinking.ppls.ed.ac.uk. You can also subscribe to our podcast on iTunes for more research news and views from philosophy, psychology and language sciences here at the University of Edinburgh. It depends upon what the meaning of the word is. Yeah.